This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below. Hello, welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, brought to you in association with Sportful. I am your host, Joe Robinson. As ever, joining me, co-host James Spender. Jumbo! <laughs> and on today's episode, we have a award-winning stand-up comic and presenter of recent DocuCom Channel 4 series, Along for the Ride, David O'Doherty. But before we get into that rather hilarious conversation with a man who is utterly obsessed with cycling and bicycles, James and I are going to run down some of the things that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. Hello, James. Joe, good to see you, 2022. Good to see you in 2022, sir. How are you? How are you getting on? What's what's happening in your life? Uh, I'm well. Um, I've somehow, continue, I continue to, to evade Omicron. Okay. I can feel his spectre creeping ever closer, but I continue to... Uh, dart through the shadows and evade his horrible cold clutches so that's good good um good. and i recently as in literally yesterday returned from the largest island in the uk portsmouth i mean that's not true there's probably a larger island but portsmouth is actually an island portsy island little known fact but that's my hometown i came back from there i went out on saturday night with a couple of mates lovely and i did something i haven't done for a very long time i had a curry after the pubs kicked out. Wow. Do you remember doing that? That used to be a thing. Do you want to hear some weird cosmic ordering? Yeah, go on then. Saturday, after football and the pub, I also ended up in a curry house. Yes. Whoa. Whoa. Was, it, was it BYOB? It wasn't BYOB. The Maharaj in Bexley Village does have an alcohol licence. Well, well, I'm not entirely... I believe that the Balti House... Uh, in Portsmouth does have an alcohol license, but it's also just really nice that so it lets you bring your own. And so it's been the same bloke that's been running it f- ever since ever. And I'd, he like <laughs> he literally he does he does remember us even in that kind of state. I mean, probably we're more more memorable. Does he pretend to remember you? Or I does mean, he say, tell, does he refer to you by name, or does he do that really good thing of just being like, "Oh, welcome back, great to see you again," which he does to all of his customers. No, he doesn't do that to all of his customers. He just does it to us. Joe, yeah. come on. Anyway, best mint sauce this side of uh, the South Circular. So I definitely... Right, the mint rata. Uh, we just call it mint sauce. Secret ingredient, white wine, apparently. My mate loved it so much. Not so secret, then. Not so secret. <laughs> we don't know which white wine they do, we? We don't know. <laughs> Leaf Milch. Yeah, uh, well, probably some kind of masala. Anyway, uh, still, that was good. So I went, went to Portsmouth. Also, also went and done a ride. Done a ride yeah. on a nice new bicycle. 
got it really, really dirty. And what is said that bicycle? Uh, it's a Sato Cita. Right. Sato is an Italian custom brand. Um, yeah. Cita is the model of the bike. What's really cool about it? I mean, we're already in. We strayed. We strayed way into the territory of things we like and things we don't already. So, what I really like about the Sato is as many rodden 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 mode bikes you know rodden mode bikes they're like modern road bikes rodden mode bike he was um mp for uh west drayton and shadow health secretary in the 90s i believe isn't he oh was he yeah Yeah. he sounds more like someone that used to stand on the back of uh motorcycles in the bp in the bp in the blue peter studio um balancing doing pyramids with other people from the RAF. Do you remember that? Imagine going <laughs> to the RAF and they're like, what, what, what do you want to specialise in? You can be a mechanic, you can actually fly a plane because we've got some of them, or you can be part of the motorcycle stunt team. I'll take the latter, please. I'll take the, I'll take the last one. Sounds difficult. I'll do it. You're going to have to cut. <laughs> anyway, so um, so there's that. Uh, great bike. But yeah, the point being, on a, a rod and mode bike, you can get... 32 mil tire these days because uh, modern road bikes obviously have disc brakes, wide clearances, blah 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 blah. So this has literally got a um, Panaracer Gravel King. Whoa! Tire. So it's basically it's a gravel. Whoa. It's literally a gravel okay. tire. A gravel tire. Gravel tire onto race bike, which is actually really good, especially because the roads, as my dad loves pointing out. From his and is it an all rounder rod and mode bike? As I'd in... say it's probably an all rounder. I mean, it's an all rounder. Stage dropped. Um, no, 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 no. Aero tuning doesn't actually. Do you know what? It's got none of that. It's got none of that. It's oh. got hidden. It's got fully integrated cabling. Uh, it's custom Standard. build. It's tube to tube. It's got copper filaments woven into the carbon fiber, which apparently dissipates road buzz. You know, very good for insulation. Very, it? yeah, exactly. Hopefully, it won't turn green if it gets wet. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so it looks beautiful. It costs yes. the earth. Um, of and. On the way to the train station, I crashed it into the back of a taxi. Oh, yeah! But in a a little bit like an RAF um, stunt motorcycle cyclist, I yes. took one for the team, and I saw this happening. It unfolded bullet time in front of my eyes. The taxi had just seen a spotted its prey. Someone waving fistful of five pounds that had never heard of Uber because it was a black cab. Yeah, and it just slammed its brakes on and made a quick left right across me. And I turned and I pulled what I thought was the front brake, but it's not because the bike's Italian, so the brake's the wrong way around, which actually yes. meant I got a fistful uh, of the rear brake, skidded, then found the front brake, then did an endo, went over the handlebars, landed with the bike kind of on top of me. So there's only a very small scratch on the Super ah, Record EPS. That's a scratch. That's a scratch. That's a scratch. Um, which now Sato may be finding out about through this podcast if anyone listens and right. might slightly take some of the £13,000 value off that bicycle. <laughs> but I believe the rest of it to be structurally sound. Good. At least you're all right. Yeah, and I'm all right. Nice. And Didn't even swear you're not taxi liking, Except from the, the fact that you crashed? Um, it's not really a cycling thing, although it can happen around the time of bicycles, I suppose, because we've all got to clean the things that we use. Um, I often find myself these days... The modern washing machine, you know, yes. the rodden the rodden washing machine. Yes. You don't put your liquid in the drawer anymore. The drawer is basically redundant. Only for softener. I don't even... Who uses softener? Me. That is so bad for the environment. Uh, why? Look at everything. 
I don't even need to go into it. But it makes my clothes smell like coconut. Yeah, great. So when the aliens are raking through the ashes of a fallen earth, they're like, oh, at least this guy seemed to have nice smelling clothes. Well, it'll, they'll be saying that about me and not you. Well, <laughs> oh yeah, we'll both probably die at the same time, so who's the real winner? Anyway, so <laughs> point being, I hate it. In the modern washing machine, you've got to put the washing up liquid into one of those little caps, and then you've got to put that in the jar. Or you use little capsules. Little tabs. Again, do you want to kill the planet sooner or later? Worst of all about those is that they don't always disintegrate properly and they'll get all, like, parts of your clothes will just pick up the gel. Do you know what I mean? Just on the washing tangent, my mate's kid came to stay. I mean, he came as well. So did his his partner a while ago. And she was going through a phase of just, like, getting stuff and just putting it in things. She got a whole packet of post-it notes. (laughs) I'm talking, like, I'm talking the sort of level of of a wedge that my mum gives me for Christmas to see me through the year. So it's like about four inch deep pack of post-it notes. But You're only getting that from a wholesaler. You're not getting that from I don't know where she gets it from, but she gets it from something like good quality. Yeah. Um, and she put it in the washing machine, unbeknownst to me, the little tyke, then did a wash, full wash. And mate, the thing, it was just, it was just, you put, have you put a tissue in the wash before? You know how bad that is? Imagine a Many whole times. pack of post-it yeah, notes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was horrendous. Anyway, back to my exhilarating story about things that I'm not liking. It's just basically there's more chance of getting washing up liquid on your fingers, and it doesn't come off. It's so insanely viscous and slidey. It's like so concentrated, and it obviously smells horrible when it's in that concentrated form. And then you go to do something like have, I don't know, an egg sandwich, which is what I like to do when I come back from a ride, fried egg sandwich, and then I'm sort of, I can smell lavender as I'm tucking into my eggs. Do you use sunflower oil? What, to fry the eggs? Yeah. I use olive oil for everything. I know that's bad because it's got the lowest smoke point, but, you know, you just don't let it get to the smoke point. And you, the, the perfect way to make a fried egg is high high heat, high smoke point, lots of oil, in which the egg's completely, almost completely encased in the oil, James. Yeah, a lot of people used to have heart conditions, and then people stopped doing that. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Okay. I'm going to go into the stuff that I'm liking and disliking. I'm going to bring it full circle back to the bike, back to a bicycle. Okay, those bicycle. things that we're yep. paid to talk about. Uh, and mine's a brand new bike that would have launched just yesterday. And it is the... Brompton Tie. The first titanium Brompton. I was oh, going yes. to say something completely different then. I could have broken an embargo. Well, you wouldn't have because this goes out on after the embargo to the bike that I think you're alluding to. Either way... Yes. The Brompton Tie... 7.45 kilos, three, over three kilos lighter than anything it's produced up until now. I want one. Absolutely beautiful. Oh, mate, it's class. I, I got when I went over to their headquarters in Greenford, their factory, where they produce all of their steel range mm-hmm. within the M25 to go collect the new Brompton T Urban, which is their four-speed. I think it's of- pronounced Turban. Yeah, T-Urban, Ty-Urban. No, the Brompton Turban. Yeah. I think. And, but this particular, so they're Thai bikes, they're not actually building in the M25, but they're still building them in the UK. They've got a new factory up in Sheffield with some like some Thai specialists called C.W. Fletcher, and they've developed their titanium tubing up there. Then they've got carbon cranks that they've made in association with FSA, Carbon seat post, carbon saddle, and carbon handlebars that they've made all in-house in London. Some lightweight aluminium rims. Really nicely specced bike. Beautiful rides. 
like any other Brompton. So really fun, fast, but it's got that little bit of that Thai ride feel, that sort of absorbing love that you get from Thai. Um, expensive, of course, £3,950 £3, for the four-speed, £3,750 for the single-speed. I don't know if that's that. I mean, I know that is a shed load of money. For a bike that you may only be using for 20 minutes a day. But I would also suggest that you're using it every single day. True. And it's going to be way more useful to your life than sure. any road bike, such as the one that I just described, that costs, you know, three times as much, four times as much as that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's still, you know what, like, like fair play to Brompton. When I, I went over and spoke to the team last week when I collected the bike, and their engineers were like, we didn't want to change a single thing about how what the Brompton's good for, which is, you know, it, it's exactly the same shape and geometry. It folds in exactly the same way. And they have made sure that that bike is as sort of, utilitarian and will last as long as there's still alternatives which is you know to say that this bike should last you like 20 years and be absolutely fine um and it's really lovely it looks awesome it's you know it's that brushed titanium look the black carbon componentry parts and what i did notice is at seven and just under seven and a half kilos it's actually light and day when you're carrying the bike and you know i my local station is two flights of stairs to get out of the station. Seven and a half kilos is so much easier to carry than a ten and a half kilo bike, you know? Compare that to the Brompton Electric, which is like 20 kilos. That's a lot of kilos. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what I do want to see is if I can... I'm going to take the Brompton tie to a pretty beefy hill in my area and see if I can get up it on it for fun. How many gears has yours um, got? Four. The biggest is a... So it's a 50, 50 crank, 50 tooth chain ring with an 18 tooth sprocket. That's a big, that's a big gear to be getting up a hill. Yeah, but they, that's, that's the only gear that they used in like pre-2005. So That's true. They also used a lot of drugs in pre-2005 cycling. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I haven't got much I don't like at the moment, James. Um so I'm not going to dwell on the dwell on the negative, mainly because I want to get into the interview today, which is David O'Doherty, because not only is he a very funny comic, stand-up, just recorded and aired the Channel 4 show, along with a ride with in which he takes four loved British comedians for little bike rides around different parts of the UK. Actually, it's three comedians and Grayson Perry, the noted artist. He also goes with Mel Gidrake, Joe Wilkinson and Richard Iwade. Um, he's also an absolute bike and cycling fanatic, as we learnt in this call. He's got a vast bike collection of his own, ranging from former pro bikes owned by the likes of Gianni Bagno to just awesome Colnago Masters. He's also really into the pro side of the sport, well, at least was until he found out that everyone was on drugs in the 90s. But it's a really good listen, it's a really good conversation, so we hope you enjoy it. Is that your is that your own bedroom, David? No, I think that'd be too creepy. I've just slept in my own bedroom. It'd be too intimate to then bring you up into it. <laughs> this is the basement, and uh, I was about to say the only room without a bike in it. But look, there is one bike there. So oh, yeah, I love it. Yeah, a yellow bike. Is that a yellow bike because it's some kind of uh, I don't know X uh, neutral service bike or some commemorative Tour de France winning bike? 
Correct. It is a Mavic Mutual service bike from the 1988 Tour de France. Now, it is one that I went and found every known part of. It's not a real one. But, I mean, there's no such thing as a real one. Because I believe in that era, the the pro teams used to just give frames to Mavic. Right. Right. And they would build. So every other part of it is super French and Mavic. So, yeah, that's what it is. (laughs) That's amazing. Beautiful. It's a serious problem. It's a serious problem. What, the the obsession with collecting bikes? Yeah, like this isn't a very big house and there's 14 bikes in it. Right. The sitting room has seven bikes in it and the hall has three bikes in it. And it's, you know... That's it. We can't go on like this, you guys. We cannot go on like this. <laughs> and we think we have problems, James, when we have two bikes. I know. You know, that's, <laughs> we, <laughs> we complain, ask for a big yellow storage to put them in. Meanwhile. That's, uh, yeah, you need like, uh, Joe went once upon a time to see, um, literally to a big yellow storage to see Bradley Wiggins' bike collection because he's just got it in storage. Uh, wow! Yeah. I think that's just what you do. I had I had to sign I had to sign an NDA to not disclose its location. But what I can say is it is opposite a huge Doctor Erkta factory. <laughs> that's all I can reveal. Are they doing pizza what? and yogurt, or just pizza there? I, I think I I didn't get that intimate with it, unfortunately. Wow, that is that's the lower end of the market. Not in. Wiggins bikes, I would imagine. But no, I different in many ways, you guys, I'm different to Bradley Wiggins. And <laughs> uh, one of them is that these bikes are all set up. These bikes all have bloody 100 PSI in them. And on any given day, they're all, I don't have a single hang on the wall bike. They're all ride nice. bikes. And it is interesting how on a given day, you will be drawn to, you know, Yellow Nydam's bike from the 1987 Tour de France or whatever it is. <laughs> and then tomorrow you'll feel in a completely different mood and you'll ride, you know, Gianni Bugno's bike or whoever's bike then. Yeah. So that's. So is your, is your, is your collection majority pro X pro bikes then? Uh, no, it was more. No, because like I do have an obsession with a very specific era of the Tour de France that sort of coincides with when Ireland were one and two in the world with Roach and Kelly. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, 85 to 90. But no, I was more interested in exploring all the possibilities of that era in terms of having Italian bikes and having Japanese bikes and having the setup slightly different on them. Like, no, not that one. There's one in the hall that has that thing, which is, I mean, I, I don't know how nerd you want to get here, but F Froiler Geometry, which is the one that Indurain had on his the Benesto bike, where there's like an inch or two above the crossbar on the seat tube and the head tube. So it's a steel frame, but it's super stiff for a steel frame. So I always wanted to know what one of those feels like and then yeah so there's one bicycle remaining that i would like to buy but i think it is the most expensive bike of the 1980s which is that um there is the uh bianchi x4 uh moreno argentine bike that it's literally 15 grand or something so that if you guys are thinking of paying me for this i will accept (laughs) payment of that bicycle uh 58 cc please 
58. Okay, cool. We'll try and we'll try and track. Have you got your eye on a specific? Have you got your eye on one? Because I'm assuming there's I don't know a couple floating around, or is it just one example? No, there's a few. Uh, not very many, but uh, so I am one of the greatest uh, procrastinators because, like, I have a weird job that's not really happening at the moment of comedy, yeah. and then I write children's books as well. And there's an awful lot of time to just let's take a break from that. And now let's check the farthest recesses of the internet to see if there's any new bikes. Let's look at Belgian Meerklats, whatever Belgian buy and sell is called, and rummage around and all of those. So most of these bikes that I have and most of the bits, I haven't paid very much money for it. They've just taken thousands and thousands of hours of rummaging and then using Google Translate to talk Flemish to a retired (laughs) plumber. (laughs) <laughs> have you ever I, accidentally bought something you bought you actually you actually bought you actually a u-bend bought a 15 mil yeah a, a u-bend in the 15 mil wrench not, not an old belgian mercs from kessel's factory <laughs> no but you do sometimes get these beautiful handwritten notes in kind mm. of i would call it belgian handwriting which seems to be very perfect and loopy and it'll say like uh please enjoy you'll translate it and it'll say please enjoy this object you know what I mean? You're like, oh, this is just an old guy with a shed full of cool stuff. At the World Championships last year, which were in Belgium, I stayed at a an Australian guy's hotel, and he's a bike collector as well. And he was explaining to me the same thing, where because of so many service courses being in Belgium, literally they would give people bikes as payment for stuff. It'd be like, oh, I I need the, the service course needs regrouting, but I'm not going to pay you. So here's a Trek uh, nine two hundred. Um, that was ridden by Lance Armstrong. Can you just take that? And they go, yeah, sure. And th- and now because they're not ridden by Belgian pros, all the but these Belgian sort of plumbers and electricians don't really care, so we'll let you sort of have them for for peanuts. So you need to you sh- you should get over there in like a with David Dickinson in sort of a like a real deal style television show. That could be the next <laughs> the next TV show after Along for the Ride. <laughs> <laughs> the lowest ever ratings episode of Antiques Roadshow uh, on the road, or whatever that was called. Me and Peter Schmeichel drive around Belgium trying to buy a, uh, I don't know, some sort of uh, Colnago. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, David, the reason we got you on to the Cyclist podcast was because just before Christmas, Along for the Ride was on Channel 4, still on 4OD as well, which was. Four episodes of you taking friends cycling around the UK, which was for us as cyclists and as our listeners who are cyclists, was lovely television to watch. Um, it was it was very you know one of those like um, like gone fishing where it was just a real heartwarming, easy watch. Don't have to worry about getting your booster jab and isolating for seven days for a, for a bit <laughs> i think we succeeded in that we set out to make the lowest jeopardy piece of television that there's ever been I, I was in on some of the edit of it and they were mostly the editors were people who worked on other reality type format shows mm. so the whole thing is because there's no real tension in most reality they just build up fake tension the whole time so it's like coming up after the break we find out if David has bitten off more than he can chew and it cuts to me crying saying, I never should have taken this on. And we just decided not to do that because that's 
bullshit really <laughs> so instead it was just people trying to cycle 20 miles across kent in <laughs> seven hours <laughs> <laughs> so was that was that your idea your pitch to producers or do they come to you do they the people know david is really into cycling and we want to do this thing he'd be perfect and i well i, I spent lockdown one we're giving them we're, we're giving them names now, like the First and Second World War. Although no one knew at the time of lockdown one, they just the called great. it the, the Great Lockdown. Yeah, um, on an island off the west. My parents are eighty three, so I spent it on an island off the west coast of Ireland, like a really barren, beautiful, fresh island. And I bought a bike there on Facebook Marketplace. I bought this amazing Bianchi uh, cyclocross bike for 300 quid off an American who didn't know what it was. And I just started cycling it around the island. Like up, it's an island where there's a lot of bog tracks on the island. So you basically never go the same way twice wherever you're going. And it was during that that I was thinking, well, firstly, I would love there to be someone else with me now. <laughs> and you really missed the chats. Like, like you know, I have been into cycling since BMXing when I was eight or nine. Mm. And then I rode for a club in my early teens. And then I was, uh, I was all right at other sports. So I ended up playing football and rugby then in the, that's what I put down my non-going pro from, but I always really enjoyed that the social aspect mm. in particular. The fact that like, you know, the thing when you're out for a ride and someone just joins you for a few miles, and very often you have a really interesting conversation with them. Yeah. Uh, like you, I'm not saying that you get incredibly deep or profound or anything, but they will just allude to something going on in their life and you allude to something going on in your life. And then you're just like, all right, then and they go the left out across the road and you go right. <laughs> yeah, there's something really cinematic about that. So while cycling around an island on my own for, that was four months, that first lockdown. I uh, said to uh, Zepatron, who said to Channel 4, hey, do you guys want a TV show where not much happens, but uh, David goes cycling uh, and uh, with, with interesting people? Mm. And Channel 4 had a little think about it. And they were like, that is exactly what we want for when <laughs> the world opens up again. Yeah. So, yeah, it took another year before the world had opened up sufficiently to make a show like that. I mean, it's... You know, the, there's a nice thing about that show is that it, it kind of appears like there's just two of us. And to be honest, when I conceived it, I was thinking with GoPros and technology, you know, we might have someone operating a drone and then we'll have uh, GoPros on our handlebars and yeah. that'll kind of cover it. No, 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 no. It turns <laughs> out there was, you know, 10 or 15 people there and like a, a sort of a EV wagon that makes no sound with a robot arm at the back of it. So they can get that nice two shot of yeah. the people talking with like, in a way I wanted that eighties uh, tour de France motorbike sound. <laughs> <laughs> in a way I wanted the picture to break up every time we went through a forest because the satellite relay stopped, but they were less into that. And just have Phil Liggett, over the top of it, just that filling time while you come until you get out of the forest. <laughs> Getting things a tiny bit wrong sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's an amazing bit in the, I think it's must be the early 87 Tour de France. And he, there's a breakaway 
and he screams, uh, Stephen Kelly and Sean Roach. And you're like, well, <laughs> Phil, you've got that slightly wrong, but I like your enthusiasm. And um, anyway, yeah, they, um, yeah, they were into it. And then they, it took a whole lot of production to do it. And then we rode a bunch of routes. Uh, mm. just to try and find, like we were looking for quite a specific thing. I mean, one thing was, I really didn't know, there were some, like Grayson Perry is a unbelievably fit cyclist. Yeah, he's, we've, we've done stuff with him before because he works with Sustrans. He's like really big adv- advocacy for cycling, yeah. But like, I, I, he could have, he could have ridden certainly 100 miles a day kind of thing. You got that impression from him. And he was really kind and happy just to cycle along with me. But, the, oh, God, there was about, say, that episode with Grayson, because we were cycling up the Brecon Beacons. And again, I had just thought, sure, I'll pop it in first gear. And, I mean, what are these hills? They're fine. I'll just, we'll chat in first gear. And then he takes off on the first hill, and I'm like, <gasps> and I'm, try- I'm trying to interview him. So I'm like, where, where do you get your inspiration from, Grayson? Uh, so there was a decision then. We'll just, let's just ride up these hills and have a little chat at the top. But yeah, I didn't know in taking a non-cyclist uh, like uh, Mel Gedroich uh, how far we could go. Mm. So we definitely erred on the side of let's aim for 20 to 30 miles a day you know what I mean and with Mel and Joe the popped a little motor in those bikes then as well yeah. we mechanically doped those bikes well Joe was on the equivalent of a tank with two wheels that mm-hmm. bike was I, like I don't know how those bikes work I know there's a thing with Deliveroo drivers where you can somehow tricksie up the motor to make it go faster than it should I don't think this bike had that but the acceleration on it Oh my goodness. I've, yeah, it's the first time I've ridden, like, it's pedal assist and <laughs> pedal assist is in italics. Cause that means <laughs> if you move the pedal slightly, it suddenly puts about 90 horsepower. You could kill some wildlife. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, that was the joke that he was just going to go straight through a forest <laughs> and then just straight through a lake. And he'd just go, keep going in a perfect straight line across the, wherever we were, all the way to Southwold. Yeah. <laughs> So did you have to convince, are these, are these friends of yours, um, you know, in real life, as it were, and do you have to kind of convince them to come and do it with you? Or is it, are they kind of, uh, you know, this person is known again to producers, they ride, let's like go and chat to Grayson Perry. Uh, with Grayson, yeah, I, I'd read, I'd read, you talked to Grayson and then Grayson had always alluded to mm. cycling. I mean, it appears in his work a lot. Yeah. Uh, and then. In a lot of interviews I'd seen, I am obsessed with Grayson Perry. And that's why that was slightly creepy for him to then have to hang out with me for two days in a sort of Alan Partridge superfan way. And in a lot of interviews with him in the background was that green aluminium specialized bike, the one that he ended up uh, riding with, which I think was his race bike in the late 90s. Mm. Uh, And so you, you can just tell when you see Grayson in a dress, those calves, you know, that's not nothing, those calves. So, uh, I, no one. Uh, <laughs> we, yeah, completely. And, uh, so he was, let's ask him because I know he doesn't do much, you know, of other people's TV, but this was, it's a cycling show and I want to show how beautiful cycling 
can be in, in especially in a beautiful uh, lockdown nation. And there'll be a nice escapist thing to it. And that swung him. With Richard Iwadi, I knew he cycled all the time because mm. I've done a fair few TV shows with him. And there's always a Brompton sitting in the corner of his dressing room. And I knew that he, you know, wasn't averse to cycling across London. You know, and on one of those TV shows, they'll put a car on for you if, you know, if you want it. But he was always, no, I would prefer to cycle home. And then again, as soon as he, I saw him in his shorts, you were like, whoa, this is going to be a fun. So, yeah, he rode a Brompton, a three-speed Brompton without much knowledge of gears or at least he was just one of those people who just popped it in third and was like, <laughs> let's go. So his legs would be moving really slowly, just on the flat. He'd be like, do you want to give yourself a slightly better time there? He'd be like, no, this is how I ride. You, you rode up Dumb Woman's Lane, which I've ridden up before. And I think James has as well, which is a, like a proper hill. And he just sort of goes up it while still talking to you. And he's sort of really like monosyllabic way. I was like, oh. You, he must be quite fit then. Uh, yeah, he doesn't know us. He's one of those <laughs> fit people. Who, you know, you sometimes see footage of like some, you know, guy in Malaysia who's cycling up a mountain with five boxes on the back of an old steel bike and competitive cyclists uh, can't keep up with them. It had that sort of a vibe where he had no idea of the level of game that he has. And yeah, we went, yeah, we were very into Dumb Woman's Lane because we started that ride at Spike Milligan's grave. Yeah, in Winchelsea, yeah. Yeah, who's a big inspiration to both of us. And then rode at some point, because he lived on Dumb Woman's Lane. So at some yeah. point, we would have gone past his house there. So that was another nice part of... And at the top of that hill is Peasmarsh, which is where Paul McCartney lives. No! Yeah, he lives in Peasmarsh. In, and, and they... He's lived there for like 30 years and in, he just goes to like the local Jepsum supermarket and he'll bump into, I've, I've heard. <laughs> wow, that could have, we, we could have sung, yeah, that's what he, I hear he loves it when, as you cycle past his house, you scream Blackbird, the song, really, really loud. <laughs> <laughs> we, we could definitely have done that. <laughs> So how did you decide where you're going to ride in the UK? Um, where, where, were the, where were the best places? Where was most surprising to you? Uh, I thought about it in a, like, Mario Kart. Do you know uh, Mario Kart? Where each track, you've got your Moo Moo Meadows, yep. and then you've got the one where you're on a road in space. And <laughs> Rainbow I Road. Thought of, Rainbow, Rainbow Road! <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, I thought about it that way. So I just wanted them to look different so that mm. each episode, if you just saw it for a moment, you didn't just think we were cycling around the same field again and again. So you were like, I want, I want beauty, and then I want to be post-apocalyptic. George Orwell. That'll be series two. Dungeness. I was talking about Dungeness. Which... Oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah. So... So, yeah, the way it ended up, uh, James, the producer, is a cyclist as well. So, you know, I live in Dublin and I know my Ireland very well. But I also knew various landscapes that I like to cycle through, as in coastal cycle. Give me some castles, uh, then mountains. And actually, in terms of mountains, the Brecon Beacons are interesting because so I used to cycle in 
you know, sort of Alp Marit, Maritime Alps and places like that in, in France in my early 20s. And I always said, oh, we don't have, in Britain and Ireland, we don't have five, 10 mile climbs. But mm. then you actually do in the Brecon Beacons, there's some really, really long mm. uh, climbs. So I definitely wanted uh, one of those and then a beautiful English countryside type one as well. And then an absolutely weird one with Dungeness. I had always wanted to go because of that song by uh, The Athletic. No, Athlete. The Athletic, I'm sorry, is one of your uh, enemies. The uh, (laughs) Athlete uh, have a song called Dungeness. And a million music videos from my teenage years were shot there. I I think um, Ashes to Ashes. Bowie's it was shot down there near Canberra Sands as well. Wow, cool. Well, I I also wanted, and then when Iwadi said he'd do it, that seemed like a perfect place to take Iwadi as well. And the weirdness of it was that the perfect moment in that episode was so we were cycling along, chatting about some old shite, and then suddenly a two foot train went past us <laughs> at normal, like it was two to three feet high. There were people sort of crouched, sitting inside it, like it was Magical Mystery Tour or something. And uh, we just had to stop then and take some photographs of that. Yeah, they've recently opened that up again, haven't they? It's that narrow gauge. Where does it run? Like, Joe, Joe's from Kent, so help me out. But where does it run from? Dungeness up to... Um... I think it probably goes to Camber. It's kind of it's kind of even longer than that. But yeah, I don't I don't think you'd do too well jumping on that and trying to sort of uh, nick a few minutes on the stage. It's pretty It's pretty miniature. I think it might be possible to jump over it. It's the only time I've ever seen a train where, and I'm not talking about it in an evil Knievel on a BMX type way. Yeah. I think if you just sprinted at it and <laughs> somersaulted over it. Wow, that should have been the ending to that episode was me with just a freeze in midair. As people would have gone, this, that show didn't end how I thought it was going to end. I thought this was a chilled out cycle, not incredible stunts from a danger dog. <laughs> and Next when, time. When you... um. You sort of pitched up at the end of the night because they were two day rides. You you go into these sort of sort of alternative accommodations and lovely accommodation. But was that genuine, or did you do the bear grills thing of jumping in an Uber and staying in the local Best Western? Wow, I need to make it clear. I was so open to doing the bear grills thing. <laughs> I was the first time we pulled up at. No, I knew I I knew what was coming because it had been explained to me all along, because of certain scandals in British television over the last 15 years of people not doing things that they said they'd do, like right. uh, having fake live sections. Like the, a, Saturday, a Saturday morning kitchen where the clock behind them had 3pm on the wall once. <laughs> and everyone was like, it's 9am, hang on. <laughs> yeah, you're not allowed to lie. Like, uh, uh, you are genuinely not allowed to lie. So... Yeah, we, me and Richard Iwadi stayed in a tent in the Romney Marsh. And there was, a, what you didn't see on the TV show was that there was a second one of those about uh, 100 metres away. And you're thinking, wow, that's good. They have two on the property. That's great. And then at about 10 o'clock, a hen party arrived at the other one. And because <laughs> we were asleep, the and I remember Richard saying about is this glamping? And I was like, no, it's a structure. It's a definite structure. Mm. And then as the hen party really started to get going with the abatunes, 
I just said to myself, this is a temporary structure. At any moment, they may assault on Precinct 13, so I'll swarm our safari lodge. And me and Iwadi are going to have to defend ourselves against 40 drunk women. Well, with... um. Yeah, with Richard in particular, because so many people fancy Richard Iwadi. Like, it's it's quite unbelievable. If word had got out that he was in a structure that you can put a sword through the wall of, <laughs> who knows how different that episode might have been. And all you had to fend him off was a mini pump. <laughs> <laughs> and some obscure piece of bicycle kit. Yeah, the, a five through one fork. <laughs> of a bike that I got for my 14th birthday. Actually, in that episode, in the, the first two episodes of the series, which is Richard Iwadi and Grayson Perry, I rode the bike that I got for my 14th birthday, uh, the frame. It's a 531, just rally, the classic frame. And yeah, I it was that thing where my birthday is December the 18th. So I remember the only way to get them to buy it for me, I think it was about 150 quid. Mm. So this is 91, maybe, uh, was to do the, it can be a joint birthday and Christmas present. Remember <laughs> that old trick? Yeah. And, and then, and the problem with when my tastes in bicycle equipment move beyond, I want a BMX or I want uh, a mountain bike. I remember like trying to leave catalogs around the house but when the when the tech starts to get a little bit fancy, then I'm like, I would love this bike in 22 inches with this fork here <laughs> circled. So in the end, no, that bike, my mother drove me up to Joe Daly Bikes is one of the most famous bike shops in Dublin because it's Stephen Roach's. It's where he um, got all of his gear when he was uh, up and coming. And yeah, so that's the bike that I, I raced it for a season then. And then it, like, it, it was, it, it means a lot to me that bike because I then rode it to school afterwards. And then I, when I went to university, I rode it to university. And then I did bits and pieces of couriering in my early twenties around Dublin. And then when I started doing stand up comedy, I would ride uh, it to gigs. And then when I started doing the Edinburgh fringe, I would bring it over mm. to Edinburgh. So it's like, it's this bike that's always been there for me, man. So it was really nice then to cycle it up uh, mountains with, with Grayson Perry. Yeah, it's funny because Grayson Perry has this teddy that he's had since he was three or four called Alan Measles that appears in a lot of his work. And I remember saying to him at one point, this bike has been, we've been through so much together. Mm. This is the closest I have to um, Alan Measles. Yeah. Does it have a name like Alan Measles? No, it doesn't actually. No, it's, I, I mean, it's just, it is the, it is my rally, you know? Mm. And then I, I have to admit, I did trick it up before the series. I put like uh, some um, early 2000s Jura Ace group set on it. Oh, nice. But it's still pretty light, you know? It's mm. still flying. But then the, the other problem with that was because of the non lying nature of our television program. We then put panniers on it and uh, loaded them with all the gear we needed for the overnight. So it ended up being quite heavy. So that is another of my excuses. Excuse number 14 as to why I couldn't <laughs> keep up with Grayson Perry while we were trying to cycle up Welsh mountains. 
<laughs> so oh yeah that, i mean you touch upon that that's such a cyclist rite of passage is to kind of convince their parents to buy them something and i remember my dad making me write a spreadsheet with pros and cons of why <laughs> why i should be allowed to spend my money my pocket money on a set of shimano brakes and he was eventually, he was eventually satisfied very sweetly he then went okay you know you've satisfied my criteria and i'll pay half but i'm just thinking like now as an adult what are those really extravagant purchases that you now make um, with bikes that you weren't able to do when you were a kid? Well, it's a dangerous thing when you have some money (laughs) and you're into cycling. The one thing that I have resisted, I've never gone down the carbon route for some reason. And it's probably to do with adolescence, really. Uh, I... I'm obsessed with a spe- that specific era, you know, up to about, I've one slightly modern. I love, I love cyclocross bikes. Mm-hmm. I just feel they're very suited to, in particular, the Irish winter, even riding on the roads with them, put slightly slicker tire, with just with the wider handlebars and the compact gears and all that. So I have uh, one of those Colnago World Cup uh, yeah. disc brake bikes from about 2015. So that's about the most modern bike that I have. But at the same time, I bought that on some forum for 600 quid. You know, it, it's, I, so I've never, I've never gone the S works tarmac route. Like John Tarot. Yeah. That said, there is enough to get obsessed with still in the era just before that. But then like the closest I've ever had to having a balls removing bicycle accident was on retro kit weirdly which was about three years ago i I took a photo that kind of went viral in nerd cycle uh some nerd cycle forums picked it up which was i got an an old rabobank cyclocross aluminium bike from i think from the mid 90s and uh it was the it was it was a colnago one with a dual uh, down tube on it. Uh, and it basically, I bumped it down a hill of some kind. And to say, have you ever been on a bike and the whole cockpit area, and by the cockpit, I mean the front wheel and everything just comes away like that. <laughs> and your whole arse end just shoots back like that. So it's this kind of... Um, uh, like wacky races thing where you are now. Luckily, I was going quite slowly at the time, but yeah, it had the the really thin aluminium had sheared on both, leaving a razor like sharpness that was just resting against my ball bag, and that was okay. I'm not buying old aluminium anymore, <laughs> or I'm not certainly not buying old race aluminium because. Yeah. It's just gonna fatigue after a certain point, and rightly so. It's done its it's done its business, and so after that, I vowed I will only get because I'm not going carbon route. I have maybe titanium and maybe steel, so it, it, it's it's not that you, you still can buy those bikes if you know the correct uh, Hungarian website to go to <laughs> for six or 700 quid. And then you see the same bikes turning up on fancy Berlin secondhand bike websites sometimes yeah. for five and six grand. Like it's absolutely bonkers. I, I, um, I was lucky in a way because on my, so I just grew up on a bike's road in Dublin where 
I think we'd all been through BMXs at the same time. Right. And then we all went into mountain bikes. And then Roach came along and we just all went into race bikes. But there was a kid on my road called Stephen Wallace, whose grandfather, ridiculously, was Barnes Wallace, who had invented the bouncing bomb in the Second World War. And <laughs> while you or I, if our parents went out for the day, might steal a can of beer and drink it behind the shed, his idea was, I will take the washing machine to bits and draw out blueprints of how it works and then have it back together by the time they get back so they will never know. <laughs> so he was like basically machining his own parts at the age of about 13 or 14. And there was, if you called over to his house, he basically wouldn't allow you to leave till your bike was in better nick than you had wow. got it. So it was uh, through him, I got really into repair. And so I kind of know my way around a bike pretty well. I worked in bike shops then. Well, I met my first girlfriend because in university, I had a backpack full of tools and I would call to your house and fix your bike for you. And oh, nice. yeah, I kissed a girl doing that. It was a very cash inefficient operation <laughs> because it ends up taking ages to take a buckle out of someone's rusty back wheel. And then yeah. you can only charge them about three quid for it as well, having clearly spent three hours in their back <laughs> garden. <laughs> yeah, that, I always thought, um, yeah, it would be great to be a bike mechanic growing up, but then you realise the sorts of bikes that you have to work on. And some of the most pissed off men I've ever met worked in bike shops fixing 14-year-old kids' bikes like mine. Uh, I, I complete, it's like black books. Black books yeah, could yeah, yeah. have been set <laughs> in a bike shop. I, like, so I remember where, the first time I worked in a bike shop, having this idea that, I don't know, literally people were going to like come in in full race gear yeah. and be like, sorry, I'm in the middle of a race. And, you know, <laughs> the, the click on my super record friction is slightly out. Could you help me? And I'd be like, yes, I know how to do this. And I have the tool. Whereas the reality of what actually happens is there's only three things wrong with everyone's bike. And a lot of the time they say stuff like, does it, does it, it sounds haunted. <laughs> the bike sounds haunted. So you just have to get it and ride it around the block then. And yeah, I mean, generally things need a new uh, chain and a freewheel. Isn't that, isn't that the secret to most things? I, I'm pumping yeah. up your tires is still just from a cyclist point of view, there's times at the lights, I feel like just step off your bike there. Look, yeah. <laughs> you're running 30 PSI in these tires. Do you realize how much easier this is going to be if we just pop that up a little bit more? My, my, fav- my favorite ones to see in London are, there's two. There's the, the, the inverted drop handlebars where they're upright. So they have to almost bring their hands back to brake. That's not helping anyone. Um, and I'm talking of, e-bikes earlier james will attest to this the rise in um mountain bikes that have petrol engines attached to them in london which is they sound like a like a little two-stroke engine coming up and then it will be a delivery driver on a sort of a carrera mountain bike <laughs> at 30 miles an hour it's masking <laughs> tape this little two-stroke four-cc <laughs> engine to the thing <laughs> the um yeah I, like as regards talking my parents into buying me bikes and stuff the great thing about that era of 87 to 89 
in Ireland was, well, 87, I watched the 87 tour with yeah. my dad. And in particular, that stage 17, is it the La Plana stage where uh, Delgado takes off? It's Delgado versus Roach. Mm. Delgado, it's his last or it's one of his last mountain stages. So he breaks away and Roach leaves them go. And then, uh, so you think, you know, Delgado's got two minutes on him and you think, oh, well, that's the end of that brave, brave work there, Stephen. And then Roach has a plan, which is he's going to just ride gently to the 5K and then hammer it home. And it's the stage where he needs, he collapses at the finishing line and he's temporarily in a coma and all of that. And that had a big effect on dads who were watching it with their sons, (laughs) where... There he was. I was like, Dad, I need to do this. It is unfortunately, Dad, my destiny that I will one day ride up this hill and win a stage like this. So that's why I think it was he was talkable into getting me, you know, not good stuff, but absolutely bang on mediocre Suntour uh, blaze breaks for my you know, 12th birthday and then some sort of Regida wheels for my 13th and then that rally frame for my 14th, yeah. So Stephen Roach was your gateway into cycling, I assume. And, and, and Stephen Roach is the only man I know who's, the level he speaks at in terms of volume is matched by the font size he uses in his emails. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've had email correspondence of him and he uses font size six. <laughs> 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 and I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if he just doesn't realise, or he has, you know, when people who are slightly older have their screens enlarged, so he thinks it's a normal font size. But um, so was Roach your kind of gateway into the sport, seeing this man from Ireland be the best in the world, or was was there anything else? I do remember the tour watching the tour before that, or I mean, so I was about 10, I was 11, I think. Yeah, I was 11 when he won in 87. But the manner in which he won, and also something about that nightly Channel 4 footage, because there was no live option. Mm. So you didn't know, because there was no internet, you didn't know what was going to happen. So you just, you tuned in at six o'clock. And because the nature of the tour being across the month, I think, the people of Ireland. There's a few times Ireland has got really into a sport that they don't know the rules of, if you know what I mean. It was, yeah. a, it was one of the Cricket World Cups. We were inexplicably good. The one where we <laughs> beat England. And suddenly you would just, pubs were full and people were shouting like, go on, twat it. And then turning around to the one person in the pub who knows the rules and be like, is that good? Is that good? No. <laughs> And uh, similarly, yeah, all of Ireland got obsessed with with cycling. Like, mm-hmm. it's funny if you watch, I watched The Snapper recently, which is the movie, the commitment, the follow up to the commitments movie, which is of that era. And the kids are all rather than a football team. The kids of the area are all in a cycling team yeah. and they're all just riding round and round the block the whole time. And that was very much that era of of Ireland then. And then it, 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 for me, God, emotionally, the single most wrought emotional event. I, well, the, so the, you had the 87 tour, then you had the 89 tour, the greatest tour of all with mm. uh, Fignon and Le Mans. And then it went for me up to the 89 worlds then, 
was Le Monde won it. He, but he won a sprint against Sean Kelly. Yeah. Where basically Kelly picked the wrong gear. I, like, I, I was lucky enough to interview Paul Kimmage for a podcast uh, last year. And I like, you know, like there's so much dark goings on in cycling. I was able to ask him, like, what was going on there? You know, because you hear tales of people offering money to people and all of that. And uh, Paul was just like, no, Kelly would have done anything to win the world. He, yeah. he, which is wild, isn't it? That like after a career, like Kelly's been the world number one for six years at that point. And in that sprint, that probably the race that would have meant more to him than any other. He stuffs, he picks his... his Whatever is thirteen instead of his fourteen. <laughs> in um in along for the ride, you talk about uh, in kicking off with Richard Alawadi that you had those heroes eighties nineties and then something happened um, with drugs and your yeah. your hero your hero which you don't you don't mention who the hero is uh, who kind of got busted that um sort of turned you off cycling a little bit or uh, yeah know. it was every one of them it was like it's not an exaggeration to say. Every single one of my heroes got like the 88 tour. Like, God, it's all I watched it on YouTube recently. There's a stage and it was this point where my heart started to break was Delgado is leading the 88 tour, having come second in 87. And he, the race leader has failed a drug test is what. Um, and you sort of knew a bit about drugs because of Ben Johnson. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking this is a really big deal. And then Phil Liggett explains it and says, now there's an appeal and they have successfully argued that the drug he's taken wasn't on the banned list. And that was the start of just, oh my God, this isn't good. Whatever this is, is bad. And then, then things went crazy. So I love, I did love Lamont. And, mm. uh, and then, but then into the nineties, like this, this is like, my obsession with cycling and that era, like it was insane. It was absolutely nuts. I used to, you know, I used to get an Italian dictionary and go to the big news agent near where I live uh, to read Gazzetta della Sport to find yeah. out what was going on in the tour of Tuscany or whatever. Uh, it was that level. And then it started to go mad. Then when EPO came in, you know, in the early nineties. And then it led the point at which, you know, like there's a, I might've said it in that TV show, but the, the take I then started to have was like, fool me once, shame, <laughs> fool me twice, fool me over 40 times though. <laughs> and that, that led up to that stage in 95 tour. With, so my cousins are Danish. So I'd always like Bjarne Reese then. And yeah. I was really rooting for Bjarne Reese. And then the, there was, you kind of sensed something was weird. Maybe, maybe that's just in retrospect, but there's a stage where he attacks 17 times or something against <laughs> Injuran going up a mountain. And it was that era where like there were five setters in the French open. The person would be vulnerable the next day. Like yeah. even if you watch the tour in, you know, 86, 87, 88, someone has a big day in the mountains who's not a mountain climber, you know that they will be vulnerable the next day. And then that just stopped happening. And that as much as anything just started to 
turn me off it. And this is before Armstrong or any of that. When you started to read books on it, I did read Kimmage's book came out in 1991. Mm. And I read that then. And it, you, you, I didn't want to believe it necessarily. And then, every, yeah. It came out that, well, the Kelly had failed a bunch of drug tests, you know, that that was that was in his book. And then um, there was implications that that Carrera team that I had loved had been using one of those Italian doctors as well. And that was like uh, the rest of my heroes were on that. And so I, um, yeah, I I stopped watching it then. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I. I, I, I hate to say it to you guys because I know that you're super stands, but like I have gone back every few years. Like I'll go back for Sam Bennett. Yeah. You know, I'll go back for Dan Martin. But then the problem is I've gone back and like Contador is done then or Schleck is done. And there's a point at which you're just like, okay, I think I'll just watch the Bulls on Eurosport <laughs> 7. <laughs> No, but they're probably they're probably all doping too. It's like snooker players; they take like barbiturates and stuff, don't they? To keep 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 their minds clear, just like a sniper in Afghanistan. To keep there is no steady. there's no drugs in bulls and petonk is the one totally clean sport <laughs> that I won't have a word said against. No, I obviously I I realize all that stuff and particularly that like. Do you know what? I think I made my last comeback to pro cycling. I don't mean to race to watch was. And, and this is such a stereotypical thing. The 98 tour, because it started in Dublin. Yeah. Like F- Festina Fair was in Dublin. Like <laughs> Vili Votes was coming to Dublin for his uh, tour of the Guinness factory when he had all the gear and the boot of his Nissan Micra. So I have made so many. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in a happy place now where I just love bikes and I love cycling. And I don't, nothing can affect those memories. Like the genuine tears of joy I cried when I, I do a, I do a podcast for the second captain's podcast guys. And the intro to it is uh, ghost town by the specials mm-hmm. overlaid with Phil Liggett's commentary on stage 17 of the 1987 tour de France where he goes, there's a right. So they have a shot of Delgado and, he, and Liggett says, and now the clock starts. I think we'll see how far behind Roach is. And there's a rider coming up behind and he says, it looks like Roach. It's Stephen Roach. And it's five seconds. Like nothing can ever take away the feelings that I felt then. But at the same time, you know, unfortunately, when I've watched the sport, my eyebrows are very high on my forehead. My eyebrows are almost into my hairline. So with such an obsession, though, um, as bikes are all-consuming, how on earth did you also simultaneously create a comedy career for yourself? Because it sounds like you spent every single minute of the day thinking about bikes up until about 1998. (laughs) I did a show in 2001 that tried to combine the two where the audience could bring in their bikes broken bikes mm. and me and another guy would repair them live on stage <laughs> it, it was this show called saddled and it was nearly really successful because audience might be reluctant to be like what's your name what do you do but because it's personal information but if you say to anyone where'd you get your bike so often they just have a brilliant i bought it off a nun you know what i mean and then there follows 12 minutes of 
classic chat. But the problem with that show was you got in for cheap if you brought a broken bike. Mm. But then we had people fishing bikes out of the canal and like wheeling them in <laughs> a bike that was going to take about 14 hours to make it rideable uh, people bringing that in so i uh I, I don't know the the two have always coexisted as in cycling puts a lot of or sorry uh doing stand-up comedy puts a lot of pointless adrenaline into your system mm. that has nowhere to go all this fight or flight goo is inside you so I've always really enjoyed cycling home after gigs. So I've, d- I've done the Edinburgh Fringe now about 20 times. Yeah. And every year now I buy a bike on the first day uh, and then I give it away in the last show to the person in the audience with the best reason as to why they should have it. What's the best reason you've, you've ever been given? <laughs> so word got out about this a few years ago. So you had like drama groups would come and write a song about why they should have the bike. And uh, someone else had uh, made up a dance routine about why they should get the bike. And then one girl just said, she, she put her hand up and I said, why do you think you should have it? And she clearly hadn't thought about it very much. And she went, oh, I'm adopted. And she got the bike. <laughs> you get a free bike. You've been adopted. So uh, uh, cycling and comedy have always, well, they've gone hand in hand for me. And that's why it was so nice to make that TV show because it genuinely was the dream of all of my Venn diagrams, <laughs> which is uh, cycling, beautiful countryside, uh, uh, my friends or interesting people and comedy. And yeah, we got to stick them all together then. Yeah. Yeah. You kick, you kick off one of your, um, I think it's in Melbourne, one of your stand-ups where you sit down on stage and you say, sorry, everyone, I'm just a bit like a Tour de France spectator. Can you describe, <laughs> can you describe what a Tour de France spectator looks like in your mind? <laughs> I think it's specifically, I look like a spectator from the 1989 Tour de France. Yeah. There's um, like, I love I love a colored pop, uh, hence this T-shirt I'm wearing, uh, as you talk to me now, is pink. And there's a sort of mix of plastic jacket mm. and green trouser and then old school Hummel runners or one of those weird French brands, you know, <laughs> decathlon type uh, yeah. shoes and then a baseball cap that's slightly too big. You know, that is my look. And that is also, if you look at any of those classic, you know, not even running along beside the the race leader, but just standing there warmly applauding Richard Varonk as he rides up uh, <laughs> Col d'Ivoire, that is my look. There'll always, there'll always be one spectator with glasses, like, that would make Dennis Taylor win. And then that weird mixture of very often standing beside him is just a woman in a full bikini yeah. then as well. <laughs> but it's, such a, it's, it's, it's a very French thing to do, isn't it? It's just kind of like drive with your van, even when there's not a, a bike race on, drive with your van, get some kind of sunbleached plastic chairs and stick them at the side of a random bit of motorway and just sit there and eat a sandwich, possibly sunbathing which makes absolutely no sense to anyone that hasn't been to France and is definitely a kind of hallmark of the Tour de France. I do, I do just love that kind of... Uh... It's, so, it's so good. Like, like, and then also on the flat stages as well, where you, know, you sit out for six hours with your cooler and the whole thing goes by. And I would imagine if there hasn't been a break and there generally hasn't those stages, I'd say you're done in about a minute. Yeah. Have you, <laughs> have like, you... Wow. 
have you taken have you taken your um to a spectator look to france and seen a, seen a tour or even to italy and seen a year or anything like that uh, i've seen the i saw the tour when it was here in mm. 98 and uh and then i would go and watch whatever rate the nissan classic used to be the irish yeah. race and then no but i i rode some of the mountains in the uh pyrenees and the alps in france when i was I used to go off after Edinburgh, even the idea of doing it now, because you're basically more tired after doing a month of shows than you will ever be in your entire life. Mm. And now all I do is lie motionless for about three weeks, you know, while the skin grows back on my hands. And then I used to bring a bike straight to France, like get a Ryanair flight to Nice and then like, you know, head to Ventoux or whatever it was. And uh, yeah, that was my idea of relaxing then. So I don't quite have that uh, level of stamina anymore but yeah it was always fun going because even in early september you'd still see the names written on the roads that they yeah. that they'd been up in july that's very uh that's very craft work of you to sort of combine the, the gigging and the cycling because i think they used to tour around and then ralph hutter and um I forget the other guy's name used to get their bikes out of the back of the tour bus and cycle the last kind of like 50 miles <laughs> into town <laughs> which is probably why they're so motionless on stage <laughs> with um with flight of the concords i work with flight of the concords a lot and we're always good for cycling because on those tours we get to stay in hipster hotels where very often they have bikes in the lobby now mm. uh and then there's a beautiful the beautiful photograph i have from a few years ago where uh, we were doing a gig in dublin and so the day of the gig we went off and I just gave them bikes from my sitting room. So you've got like, whatever, Jermaine from Concords is on like Guido Bontempi's uh, Batidlin and I'm sitting on someone else's something. Anyway, there's just like absolute hipster wet dream photo of three people on uh, weird old steel uh, Colnago Masters. Brilliant. Right. Um, so, David, before we go, um, along with the ride, it's on 4OD at the moment. Do you, do you know if they'll I be... I think any- changed the name of 4OD. Because when they did that, I was like, oh, thanks so much, you guys. Thanks for naming 4OD after David O'Doherty, 4O'Doherty. <laughs> and then I got this really sternly worded letter from Channel 4. That were, it's called All 4 now, David. <laughs> We've changed the name. It's on the free oh. streaming service yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Channel 4 offer. Um, will there be a second series, do you know? Have you, have you got ideas? I mean, who knows? But yeah, there's so many places that I would like to cycle. Uh, and yeah, TV is so weird now because... It's not even like ratings anymore. It's now ratings and the number of people who watch it over the following six months, I guess, that it takes place. But there's so many people that I would like to go for. You know, there's a point with this TV show where you really do start to sound like um, Alan Partridge talking into his dictaphone, where you're like, ride up Alp Duez with Ian Wright. And, <laughs> uh, but there are a lot more places that uh, I would like to go. So uh, I hope so. I hope to see you riding up Alp Duez with Ian Wright. I would definitely tune in. Um, but David, yeah, we'll let you go. Go have a bike ride. Um, but thank you very much for coming on. It was great to chat. See, see you. See you over there soon. Yeah. <laughs> So there we have it, James, David O'Doherty. Um, I think we can say a bona fide cycling nut. That was incredible. Absolutely. 
Maybe we should get David to write for Cyclist magazine. I think we should just be a regular contributor to the podcast, to the magazine. I mean, he'd be a great asset. He'd be a fantastic asset. So, yeah, David, I mean, what we could do in exchange is we could kind of kick off a Just Giving page to get that Moreno Argentine Bianchi for 15,000 euros that David wants. And if people contribute to that, and we hit that 15,000, I imagine that David will probably come and work for us for free on a you know, retainer ad infinitum. Definitely so. Um, but I was uh, I was impressed at um, his uh, transparency, you know, around the world of making uh, TV shows where you're basically cycling about and actually staying overnight in those places with people like um, Mel and Richard Iwadi. Uh, because, you know, as we know, sometimes there can be a little bit of smoke and mirrors with creating, you know, with creating uh, bike content. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would suggest, though, that they must have been on location in some places. for Because the Dungeness one, so you know, listeners should definitely um, go and become watchers of Along for the Ride because it is, it is really good, really good telly. Uh, but the Dungeness one, um, when they're down in Kent, glorious, absolutely glorious. But like, that doesn't happen. When I went to Dungeness... It was it was Orwellian like it was it was Orwellian it was post apocalyptic my friend it was very weird it was David Lynch level yeah it's not the nicest place in the world it's not Dungeness and I'm going to say that because um, what I didn't mention in the show was that my my grandparents actually had a caravan in Winchelsea that they rode past Richard and and David rode past oh them. really um, so I spent a lot of time down in Dungeness. Um, so I feel like I have the authority to say it does feel like it feels like someone's built it for you to go paintballing around it. It's got that vibe. It does. Well, I mean, it has that vibe because it's got um, in the background, it's still got an actual working EDF energy plant. But then it's got that weird pit bit of it because I think it did have a big other um, yeah, energy, uh, I don't know, like, cult, like power station. And they, I think they built houses around it for the workers specifically. And then those houses now have been like perversely painted in very bright colours. They've had all of the windows kicked out by the little local utes and like half the back smashed out. So it looks like a two-dimensional kind of set, doesn't it? Because there's nothing behind them. Yeah. So it very like much... A, it just like needs... a map that you'd get on Call of Duty. Yeah, exactly. It just, like it that, just yeah. needs like a, an old army helicopter just in the middle spattered in paint. And some very enthusiastic uh, middle-aged men running around throwing smoke grenades at each other just to really kick the scene off. Um, but I've just looked up though, by the way, Romney Hyde Dimchurch Railway. That's the, the classic Hyde. classic narrow gauge railway. They've just reopened that after lockdown, so do go. I will actually. I'll go down there. There's a good fish shop in Rye as well. Near good fish and chip shop in Rye nearby. Nearby, so nearby in Rye. Good antiques. In. Good antiques in Rye as well, and a scallop festival. Mm. so that was a great episode with david thank you very much for coming on uh it was just lovely to chat to someone who's not a bike rider well a cyc- a professional cyclist but someone just loves cycling um as ever thanks to our producer Lindsay, for putting together the show and putting up with our terrible recordings often um like subscribe follow us and know, uh, subs- you know Donate money to us via our Just Giving pages. Or just send us a cheque. I'll give you the address. The address I, only want, I only want comedy cheques. Great, big comedy oh, ma- Yeah, massive ones, like from the postcode lottery style. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah. And I want Jeff Brazer 
to present it to me at my front door. <laughs> but if if you're not going to do that, just listen to the next episode. Uh, James, I'll see you in a couple of hours, mate, because yeah. we're about to go meet up to do some bike shooting um, with a Magnum and AK-47. But until next time... Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra Collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below.